1: All right, so the Microsoft TikTok President Trump triumvirate is a really interesting little grouping and obviously this started at the end of last week and then there was all sorts of reports coming out over the weekend. Today the latest is that it looks like Microsoft is now trying to buy TikTok with Trump's approval and is trying to get back in the game, so to speak. So let's bring in a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who's been writing about this. Take him. Thanks for joining us. Take him, what is this all about? It's obviously, I mean very tenuously about national security. what what, what would you say the reason behind this whole uh, escapade on the part of President Trump is?
2: Um it's tough to say. I mean, it all started at the beginning of July last month when Secretary State Pompeo said they're looking at it concerning banning all these Chinese apps based on national security concerns. And I'm sure part of it is political because everyone has an opinion on TikTok. And every time they talk about TikTok, they dominate the headlines. So that that's the issue national and data privacy concerns, according to the government. Um, there hasn't been any facts or evidence that they proved or presented uh, to substanti- substantiate those concerns. But it looks like with this latest Trump phone call with the CEO of Microsoft, uh, they're going to have 45 days to come to some kind of agreement, and this would actually solve a lot of the concerns that people have and actually make sense for Microsoft, too.
0: So, Tay, is this kind of the latest step and maybe the most important step in what is appearing to be evolving a cold war, a technology cold war, between China and the West?
2: I I think so. I mean, this for some reason, TikTok, and like I said, it's because it's a very popular topic, has become like the beef front in this rising political and economic tension war between the U.S. and China. Uh, Trump has repeatedly said that he's considering banning the app to retaliate against China over how they handle the virus. So it's becoming that that key vector in, in the rising tensions between the two countries.
1: But, you know, just taking everything that China has innovated, let's say, or in taking Chinese companies and having U.S. companies buy them for parts, is that really a solution here?
2: I think it's a solution in the short term. Um, It does make sense for Microsoft to take over the U.S. stuff, basically ensure that there will be no privacy issues, no security issues, Uh, but also opens the door, like you said, to other potential retaliation. And, you know, what's the stop? The main issue with TikTok is because it's owned by a Chinese company, right? Does that mean every Chinese company that owns something that becomes popular in the U.S. or buys something in the U.S.? Is that, like, in play now? So it, it opens a can of worms that we're really going to see how, how it turns out in the next few months to a year. So, Ted, your column is out, and it's, in,
0: uh, you know, it's entitled, The TikTok-Microsoft Deal Might Solve Everything. How do you feel?
2: What's what's your the thesis behind that? So, like like we said, if Microsoft does consummate this transaction, they could protect the U.S. consumer privacy. It's 100 million Americans now. TikTok came out with that number on Saturday for the first time. So, that's a huge portion of the American population. So, data security-wise, it protects um, Americans' uh, data. And then for Microsoft, it's really helps their advertising business, which has kind of been floundering. Um, they have their Bing search engine. And the big question last week with the antitrust hearing, everyone's saying, oh, there's big tech, is they have all this market power and antitrust. What this deal does for Microsoft, and it kind of strangely for the ad market, is that it adds a big third player, the digital ad market that's dominated by Google and Facebook. So it, it counterintuitively makes um, the market more competitive in terms of the antitrust issues. Hmm. And then for Microsoft, this huge base of 100 million consumers they could cross promote it across their other consumer businesses where they have the Xbox gaming console business. Mm -hmm. They could use this as a key tenant of their cloud service where they're the number two player after Amazon and they also have this thing where on TikTok right now a lot of the creators can do video streams very similar to Amazon Twitch so this is like a new market where creators can do streaming of whatever they want and they get paid small gifts.
1: It's clearly a great deal for Microsoft, right? I mean, we have we have Snap now as well, also trying to develop something quickly that would compete with it. I mean, obviously, it's a great deal for Microsoft, but how unusual is it that a president would get involved to this extent? I mean, if we're concerned about national security and, you know, Americans' privacy and so on, are we really just handing over those concerns to a, 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 an, another private company, albeit a US one? Isn't this... A regulator's job
2: i agree with you it's a total regulator's job and this is very strange in the way trump has been unilaterally uh, making these decisions and traditionally it's been much more of a multilateral uh due process oriented process and this is kind of strange where all of a sudden they've been looking at tiktok since late last year in the 50 review and then right before election it, you know they're really bringing it up to the forefront so the timing is strange And the due process is definitely questionable in terms of what's going on. And they still haven't presented clear-cut evidence that TikTok, which the company thoroughly denies, has data privacy issues.
0: Do you think this is kind of a done deal with Microsoft? Are we going to get other bidders coming in here? Because I'm sure a lot of other tech companies would love to get the U.S. operations of TikTok.
2: I think if it happens, it's going to be Microsoft because like I said, the antitrust issues with I'm, I'm sure Amazon, Facebook, all these guys would love to buy TikTok, but they have uh, further antitrust issues. So the one that makes sense is Microsoft because they have the whole in the consumer social media segment and they have the technical know-how, the financial resources to get it down quickly. And the funny thing is TikToks. Uh, founder used to work in Microsoft, so there's a lot of connections there.
1: Uh, that Snap deal that I was talking about was the deal with music companies to add songs to videos. So just this morning, we heard that Snap had secured rights from Warner Universal Publishing and Merlin, which sounds very close to what the TikTok experience would be, right? to you know, 10 seconds and you can add sort of songs and so on. Is there any guarantee that all of these users that loved TikTok when it was a Chinese-owned company would stay with TikTok once a Microsoft-owned company? I mean, something there's something different about Microsoft-owned TikTok, TikTok than ByteDance TikTok.
2: I think they're, they're definitely going to stay. My, I'm, I'm slightly less confident in TikTok's ability to innovate like two, three years out if Microsoft buys them because it's like a different engineering team and different sense. But at least in the... mid Short and intermediate term, there's no doubt TikTok users will be static if Microsoft buys them because it means their app survives. Um, they're basically like crying and depressed over, <laughs> over the weekend thinking that it's going to get banned because Trump said he was going to ban it on Saturday. And that right. hasn't happened. So, yeah, Microsoft buying it would be the app's users will be very happy.
0: Interesting. Well, fascinating story to follow in the coming weeks and months, as you suggested, Tay. Tay Kim, technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read all of Tay's work and that of our fine Bloomberg Opinion columnist at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or opin go on the terminal lots of great work there and again a very interesting deal a lot of folks saying this really you know sets down the marker for a cold war in technology between between china uh, and the west um, and that could have ramifications for years to come and bloomberg will certainly follow that uh, story
3: this is bloomberg markets with paul sweeney and bonnie quinn on bloomberg radio
0: well, we got some better-than-expected manufacturing data this morning, so that's a great time to chat about the auto business. Alan Baum, Auto Analyst and Principal Baum Associates, joins us this morning. Alan, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's step back, just give us, Alan, maybe the 30,000-foot view of the U.S. auto industry, and I want to start with production. What are the factories doing in terms of production? How open are they?
3: Well, production has actually done much better uh, than expected, and frankly, better than the market needs it to do. Now, that's obviously not true in the area of the vehicles that are doing uh, the best trucks and SUVs. Uh, But in general, uh, production is getting uh, the inventories back to a a reasonable level, again, with some exceptions in pickups where you you generally like to have a lot of inventory because there's a lot of diversity within the product line. that said, that means that we're in a position where, uh, as we expect sales to be quite choppy now through the next couple of months because of the virus, uh, production will, uh, will start to, to pull back a little bit uh, unless uh, the automakers go ahead and, and make those vehicles and then get themselves in a, in a, in a bit of a pickle uh, because of uh, too much inventory and then perhaps the need to go to incentives.
1: Who will surprise us today, Alan?
3: Well, unfortunately, not that many automakers
1: report.
3: Uh, this is something that was started by General Motors a couple of years ago, and most of the industry has, has followed. Uh, all we're going to see today is Hyundai, Toyota, Honda, Mazda, Volvo, uh, and I might have missed uh, a, a company or, uh, or so. Um, we've already seen Hyundai and, and Toyota and Mazda report, um, and uh, Toyota uh, was down 19%. Uh, they Of the, uh, the group, they're, they're certainly the full-line automakers, uh, very much exposed to both the car and the truck market, whereas Hyundai is increasingly moving over to the, the crossover side. They had a 1% gain. Um, which is in in large part the same uh, story as the last few months. New product has helped them a lot, uh, particularly on the crossover side. So, Alan, where are we
0: on the demand side? I have some anecdotal evidence from a buddy of mine who manages a dealership here in New Jersey, and he was kind of surprised at how strong the sales have been as they reopened their dealership. Um, How are you viewing the demand side?
3: Well, we've got short term pent-up demand from the March, April, May period uh, that has has really propelled the market. You know a lot of lease, leases were extended, um, and uh, it became a, a good deal, particularly in the earlier part of the of this uh, May, June, July period, to come in and, and get a, get a product, uh, as I say, particularly with high incentives. Those incentives have actually backed off dramatically. Uh, because they're, they're simply in the uh, high-demand uh, 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 segments. Uh, there's not as much product, uh, and so no reason for the automakers or the dealers uh, to offer those high incentives. In fact, the automakers in the in, and the dealers are making more per vehicle right now than they do normally, again, because those incentives are down and because fleet sales have almost dropped to, to, to nothing. Uh, and, of course, those were less uh, generally less uh, profitable uh, sales. That said, um, I'm expecting a rather uh, a poor uh, uh, fall period, um, again, going back, uh, of course, to the virus. What we're also seeing is that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of talk, even uh, from, from me a few months ago, that might have said, well, this is not going to be quite as bad as it might otherwise be. Because new cars are bought by upper income people, in fact, we are seeing the luxury car makers, particularly the the mercedes and and the uh b m w s of the world, not doing well at all uh and and uh I think that's attributed to the fact not necessarily that buyers don't have the income but because they're they're uh they're so concerned uh about what the process of recovery is going to be either for their own businesses uh, or for the the economy as a whole and how uh, they they clearly don't have to buy. And uh, with the decline in in, uh, availability in some cases and incentives in the other, uh, they're not.
1: So if that's the case with wealthy buyers, what's the case with less wealthy buyers that might be hoping for a new stimulus check or waiting on you know, the extension of federal benefits to add to unemployment benefits statewide in order just to live, never mind drive?
3: Well, yeah. And, and those less wealthy buyers, as you say very correctly, uh, the, the, almost the last thing that they're going to think about is a new car and even a, a, a late model used car. I mean this is this is the time uh and and those those uh volumes are a little depressed as some people hold on to their lease cars uh beyond uh the expiration of their lease uh and so uh, clearly as you say you're going to be paying the rent and uh, and keeping yourself uh fed and and uh in your home uh as opposed to to buying even a used car and and uh as a, as I said a minute ago uh increasingly, that new car buyer is the upper income buyer. So those uh, now, now that's not to say, of course, that uh, the unemployment surge uh, has not affected across the board, uh, but it certainly has a greater impact uh, on that lower income uh,
0: person. Mm. So, Alan, let's just real quickly here. What's the impact, if any, so far on the electric vehicle market stemming from the pandemic?
3: Well, you know, the, the, the problem is uh, that uh, a number of, of uh, new vehicles have been delayed a little bit, new launches, um, and the volumes were pretty modest uh, uh, even with the launches, with the obvious exception of Tesla. Uh, and, and Tesla, uh, just as its stock seems to be on another plane, uh, some of its sales are on another plane as well. Um just because uh, and, and I, I will be one of the first to say that the uh the competition that Tesla faces is a lot less obvious than it than it might seem. And what I mean by that is as other automakers uh introduce electric vehicles, some of them frankly with a lot less uh, uh uh, interest or excitement, if you will, uh, than a player like Tesla um, with their own marketing efforts uh, leading the way in that lack of excitement, if you will, um, that uh, those those sales are not going to be great. Uh, and uh, we've also seen... Um, in part because of regulatory issues here in the U.S., where they at least temporarily have backed away, uh, and in Europe, where those requirements are quite strong, uh, then uh, the the automakers have focused on the markets where they need to meet regulation.
1: Alan, thank you. Always a pleasure to speak with you. That's Alan Baum of Baum & Associates. And don't forget, a little later on, we get July auto sales numbers. This is Bloomberg. Robert Thompson is CEO of Clinical Reference Laboratory. It's one of the largest privately held clinical testing labs in the US. Well, now it's developing a rapid response COVID test, basically one with a 24 to 48 hour turnaround period. Let's check in with Mr. Thompson now to see how the development of this test is going. Not only the development of the test, but also FDA emergency approval. Robert, thank you for joining us. First of all, how does your rapid response test differ from others that are almost most on the market?
4: So our test is a saliva based test. Um, it's called CRL rapid response. And saliva allows for sort of easy, frequent testing. It's much more pleasant than the traditional nasal swabs. Uh, and it allows for the testing of large populations quickly and cost effectively.
0: All right. So Robert, one of the key things is turnaround times. Um, You know, we talk about we're doing millions and millions of tests, but they're really, for many people, ineffectual because the turnaround times can take, you know, seven, eight, nine days and therefore kind of defeats the whole purpose. Give us a sense of how sure, how much confidence you have in your 24 to 48 hour turnaround time. Well,
4: I have a great degree of confidence in it. We have invested heavily in automation, which has allowed us to really radically expand the number of tests that we can do in any given day. Um, We're planning on 50,000 tests per day and uh, actually have the ability to scale beyond that if need be.
1: So how does the FDA emergency approval work? Are there stages of it? How do you sort of distinguish yourself from, you know, I'm sure tens if not hundreds of other companies trying to do various things in terms of testing?
4: So, the FDA process is a, is a rigorous multi month process where they make you, uh, you go through a set of clinical trials where you're comparing your product to other approved products on the market. We compared ourselves to those sort of six inch deep, uh, deep sinus NP swabs. Um, and we showed 100% agreement with those. So, we're, uh, as accurate as the NP swab is. The, uh, goal here is really to provide a service to get America back to work and school. So we paired the the uh the test itself with an with a web application which uh sort of pre registers a test, whether you're doing it at home or you're doing it in a school cafeteria or you're doing um doing it in a workplace and we deliver the result back to the, you know, the employee or the student back over that, that same app. So we've wrapped an entire solution around a very accurate, quick and easy test.
0: Um, all right. So you received, the clinical research laboratory received the approval. What are next steps? Uh, we've been able to operate
4: as a lab developed test for some time. So we have, we have uh, aggressively Built out our capacity. So at this point, there were a bunch of our clients that were waiting uh, for the EUA before they started testing. So we've uh, really, the phone's have been ringing off the hook here. We have banks, airlines, sports teams, auto manufacturers, retailers, financial organizations, and universities uh, all uh, under contract or in the process of contracting with us. Um, as an example, uh, University of Kansas, we will be handling over 25,000 students as they return to, to school over the next three weeks. We'll be testing all of them upon entry.
1: So, Robert, I mean, this sounds amazing. And, you know, if everyone in the country were to get one, you know, on a twice weekly basis, we'd probably really tamp down this thing. What are the barriers to something like that happening?
4: Really, the the restriction on capacity is more about the availability of the testing equipment than anything else. Uh, most of these tests at, at our lab and at Quest and LabCorp as well, we rely on automation in the form of liquid handling robots, and those have been very hard to come by. Uh, gradually, the supply chains are expanding, and we're beginning to see not only in our lab, but in other labs, um, the ability to ramp up production significantly. The FTA also recently approved pooling, which I know Quest and LabCorp are going to be using, which will expand their capacity to test, especially in low prevalence areas, um, by four to five times.
0: So, Robert, is is a scenario for you, you mentioned a 50,000 test as a, a capacity that you could uh, increase from there. Is it, does it make sense to you to license your technology out to maybe some of these bigger testing companies? Um, we are
4: having conversations with some additional laboratories, um, in particular in the university space. There have been some labs that have, that have expressed an interest. There are other labs working on saliva-based testing. You'll be hearing more about it in the coming weeks just because of the ease of use and the, and the accuracy of the test. We partnered with a couple of companies, uh, Orasure Technologies for the collection device, which preserves the sample for shipping to the laboratory for up to twenty one days, and with Codiagnostics, who's our partner for probes and primers, which is you know sort of think of it as the chemicals that that detect the viral nucleic acid, um, and both of them together, that creates a very unique and sensitive test. We're mm-hmm. more sensitive statistically than the other products on the market.
1: Robert, how much does it cost and how long does it stay valid for? So if I'm tested today and I meet somebody later that has it, uh, you know, will I need another test tomorrow?
4: It is always, all of these viral tests are a a spot in time. So uh, most companies are creating and universities are creating sort of a regular frequency of testing, a cadence of testing, uh, to try to keep a, you know, as you were calling it, tamp down on the, on the number of outbreaks. The other aspect of this is that we have to respond quickly when there is an outbreak. We can't wait 14 days or even 7 days for results, as you were
0: saying earlier. They have to get results back in 24 to 48 hours. Hey, Robert, really, really exciting news. Best of luck to you and the company. Robert Thompson, CEO of Clinical Reference Lab, talking about a a rapid uh, COVID-19 test using saliva. Key thing, 24 to 48-hour turnaround
1: very excited to speak with our next guest he is known the country over after the very popular documentary on cheerleading called cheer but also because many people need to buy his stuff adam blumenfeld is ceo at varsity brands and he joins us now from farmers branch texas adam thanks for joining talk to us about how the pandemic has impacted sales and also subscriptions for example to your internal tv service
5: well, thank you, Vani and Paul, for having me. Um, I will tell you that the pandemic has been no friend to anybody that serves schools, as you will probably imagine. Uh, but that being said, uh, we have pivoted pretty hard to a virtual world here at Varsity Brands. Uh, for those that don't know, we're comprised of BSN Sports, does sporting goods, apparel across the country. Varsity Spirit does cheer, dance, and band, as you referenced. And Herf Jones is our achievement arm that does class rings, caps and gowns, and diplomas. And I will tell you that post-pandemic, we have really started engaging with our clients a different way, Uh, most notably through a program called Impact Now, which launches this week, actually. Uh, We're helping 55 million kids across the country uh, with masks, signage, both inside the school and outside the school, and empowerment journals so that kids can get used to journaling and dealing with the problems uh, attendant to anxiety, depression, isolation during Uh, the kinds of events that we're seeing right now. So it's curriculum for schools to get through back to school, get there safely and securely. And it's been the biggest pivot that we've made
0: so far uh, in the 16 weeks of the pandemic. So Adam, what's your sense from the schools that you deal with? What percentage would you say are going to try to reopen uh, virtually versus uh, physically, or maybe even a hybrid?
5: Yeah, it's a total hybrid, and it's a checkerboard. We have schools in Georgia that are opening today. Uh, We have schools on the west coast that have deferred or gone virtual for the entire fall season and then we have many schools as you mentioned that are in between Um, i've seen a lot of schools in the last two weeks announce a hybrid model where kids will be on campus two to three days in high schools per week and then uh, virtual the other times interestingly we're seeing a number of districts use extracurricular activities be it sport uh, cheer or outside of school activities as a way to keep the kids engaged outside of the classroom, even if they can't stay engaged inside the classroom.
1: So Bain acquired you back in 2018, right? How much has Bain been involved since the beginning of the pandemic? And, you know, how, how much has your actual revenue been impacted?
5: So Bain Capital, which bought the business about two years ago, uh, majority of the business, Charles Bank Capital Partners still owns 25%. Bain's been extremely involved. Um, you know, they uh, sit on our board, as you would imagine, and have been incredible thought partners for the last 16 to 20 weeks, but also the last two years. I can't tell you, I've been in the public markets before. Uh, our business was public uh, before going private 20 years ago. And the the amount of progress and change you can make with private equity thought leadership and that kind of attention to detail is, is unmatched, in my opinion, uh, compared to other ways of running a business. So I'm, I'm grateful to have them. Having said that, we've seen... Revenue uh, to your question uh, down as much as 40 to 50 percent when the pandemic started, and it's improved gradually. So, I would tell you that revenue is down in the 20 to 30 percent range uh, now, depending on division. And it varies between BSN Sports, Varsity Spirit, and Herf Jones. But what we have done, and it's important, is kept our 2000 sellers in the marketplace, uh, not on furlough, but in the market this entire pandemic. It's been expensive been a real investment by the company, but it's increased engagement. We're using these tools like virtual graduation, where we had nearly a thousand virtual graduations this year to help 250,000 kids graduate virtually, and virtual fittings and cheer competitions that are online um, through Varsity Spirit. These kind of events help the school stay engaged with the kids. We're doing virtual press conferences through sport and through the athletic directors and the coaches, so they look like a college coach or a professional coach when they're having these meetings with their kids, and they're talking to their parents. All of these tools, which have been candidly invented over the last three months, would have taken us three years during normal times, has been kind of the
0: secret sauce to stay engaged with these schools and keep the kids uh, engaged with their coaches and their administrators. Uh, how about on the sports side? What, what are you finding the schools are thinking about their fall sports schedule? You know, it's a mixed bag. Um, we've got a
5: number of delays. So I will tell you that the preeminent thought is to delay until middle of september end of september but still have the sports season some schools are talking about having the games without the fans or having the fans socially distanced Um, there are other parts of the country namely the southeast uh, where sports are starting on time and there are no restrictions with respect to who plays or who comes to the games and watches and then in the northeast you have examples of some schools uh, that are deferring uh, sports till later in the fall or into the winter so you know to the earlier com- comment it really is a mixed bag out there i think over the next 30 days if there's a stabilization with what's going on with infection rates hospitalization mortality i think you're going to see schools come to a firm conclusion they have to by nature of the academic calendar mm-hmm. and by the middle to end of august i think you're going to see decisions be made on how to actually come back with the sports in the fall
1: Adam, real quick, because we're out of time, but you do employ, Varsity itself employs around about 9,000. Have you had to make layoffs? Are you considering furloughs or layoffs?
5: We have had layoffs. We have had furloughs. We are doing everything we can to keep employees employed and bring people back to the business. And our number one focus beyond safety and security is getting all of
0: our teammates back into the family as fast as possible. Mm. Uh, very interesting, Adam Blumenfeld, CEO of Varsity Brands. We really appreciate that. Uh, uh, schools trying to figure this out, um, and uh, both from an academic perspective and then an the extracurricular pr- perspective. Same and too. as Adam was mentioning, kind of a patchwork across the country, no real consistency. But I think the local communities are trying to figure out what works uh, best for them, and as well as you know, again, academically than sports and all the extracurriculars. Uh, very interesting perspective to there.